To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warmed. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we're starting a series going through the book of Psalms. And the Psalms are actually a collection of prayers, songs, laments, thanksgivings, and more. And this collection spans across the entire history of Israel, at least in the Old Testament. And so without much history, you might imagine that we get to see a wide range of experience and a wide range of emotion. The Psalms show us what it means to relate to God in real life. In real life, you know as well as I do, real life is confusing. It's often difficult. It's often painful. It's sometimes joyful. And so God gives us the Psalms to guide us in how to live and relate to him in light of each one of these times of our lives. Now, the Bible, it comes in several different genres to us. A good analogy is that the Bible is sort of like a newspaper, right? You wouldn't read the comic section like you would read the opinion or the headline section. It helps to know what genre you're in when you're coming to a certain book. So the Psalms are poetry. And you might have noticed when reading Psalm 19 that the Psalms don't read exactly like Dr. Seuss or Shel Silverstein. But they don't use much rhythm and rhyme. The Psalms, rather, they often use pairs and sets. But like any poetry, the Psalms, they want you to think and to reflect. One author puts it like this, that God gives poetry and imagery to get his people to think more carefully. He gives us poetry and imagery to get us to feel more intensely, to get us to know him more deeply, to get us to love him more wholeheartedly, and to get us to relate to each other and to the world more in conformity to his will. Now, when you look at the entire 150 Psalms, there are some subgroupings within them. Some of them go together. But almost unlike any other book of the Bible, you can really treat the chapters in isolation and not have to go in strict order. So when we're going through the Psalms, we're going to be jumping around a little bit because of that. So we're beginning with Psalm 19. 
Maybe it's a familiar psalm to you. Uh, And if you look at it, it's not so hard to see the divisions in this psalm. So verses 1 to 6, it's a clear subsection. David discusses discusses the message God gives through his world. Verses 7 through 11, another kind of subsection of this psalm. David discusses the message God gives through his word. And then in verses 12 through 14, kind of how the psalm ends, another subsection, David sort of responds. He prays in light of the messages that he's received. So on the whole, then, Psalm 19 is really about the God who made everything, who is infinitely, transcendently above us, has come close to us to be imminent, and we can be close to him. How the God above us has come close to us, and we can be close to him. He's done this in two ways. He's revealed himself in two different kinds of ways. Psalm 19 talks about, Jonathan mentioned earlier in the service. Theologians refer to it as general revelation and special revelation. So God has generally revealed himself to all people in several ways, one of which is through his spectacular creation. But that isn't all and that isn't enough. God has also revealed himself specially or specifically in his written word, the Bible. So general and special revelation. Through these, David gets a clear view of God. And my friends, something happens to you when you start to get a clearer view of the Lord. Two things happen to David when he does. David is cut to the core and he's filled with desire. When he gets a clearer view of God, he is cut to the core and he's filled with desire. Here's what could be a main takeaway from Psalm 19, that you know that you've begun to pursue God. You know that you've started to see him clearly. When you realize how far you are from him and... When you ask him to get rid of everything in your life that keeps you far from him, that's when you start to know that you've begun to pursue God, that you've started to see him clearly. Now, let's just join David as he progresses through this psalm. And I kind of imagine David writing this psalm during his time as a shepherd, or maybe recollecting his time as a shepherd. Perhaps it's a clear summer blue day, and it's David's lunch break. So he leads his flock, they're all together, and he finds this hill. So he goes up on top of the hill, there's a rock there, it's suitable for sitting down, he eats his lunch, and he just has time to reflect. So David looks up at the sky, at God's creation, and then I I imagine maybe he has a copy of God's word, maybe a scroll, part of God's word. He looks down at God's word, sees God there, and then he cries out in prayer. That'll be that progression we'll join him with today. We're going to look up, we'll look down, and then we'll cry out. First, look up. Let's go back to verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Right here is a classic example of the main feature of Hebrew poetry, parallel lines that relate to each other. So in this case, these two lines say nearly the same thing, but they say them in slightly different ways. So look at these two lines, and what do you notice? Well, you notice that in both lines, David's looking up. Everything in God's creation reflects him in some way, but here, David's drawn upward. Look at these two lines. What do you notice? In both lines, what's above David says something to him. Right? The heavens declare. The sky proclaims. 
There is a message of beauty and wisdom, but not just generic beauty and wisdom. There is a message of God's beauty and God's wisdom. There's an old hymn that puts it like this, that speaks of all that we see when we look up. It speaks of the colors, the clouds, the sun, the moon, the stars. And it says this, I love this line. In reason's ear, they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. Well, let's keep going. What does David see? What is, what is the message that he hears when he looks up? Verses two through four. David says that the sky proclaims a message just by the simple turning from day to night. Day to day, night to night. There is a message. David says it's a message that's wordless, but it's a message nonetheless. David says it's a message that's voiceless, but it's heard throughout the world. What can you hear just from the simple turning from day to night and night to day? What messages can you hear day to day and night to night? Well, thinking about this, remember poetry, you're meant to reflect on this. I just think about the scale of it all. And it it, it got me comparing. So last year I went with a friend to New York City and we spent one morning at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Met. Uh, And so it was just a random Thursday, but here we were alongside thousands of people on a random Thursday. And one of the first impressive pieces of art that you see at the Met is the original painting of George Washington crossing the Delaware River. And it's not a particularly groundbreaking piece of art or renowned piece of art. Rather, what struck me about Washington crossing the Delaware, the original, is that this thing is gigantic. It's 12 feet by 20 feet. And I just looked at this thing and I said, I can't imagine painting something so large with such intricate of detail. But the thing is, at the Met, somebody that's cool about it, is that you can take the elevator all the way to the top floor, all the way to the roof, and you can go out and you can look over Central Park. It's a cool view. And you can look at the uh, skyline. And if you're standing on the roof of the Met, you can look up. And you can see the sky above you. And what an almost incomprehensibly large canvas that you will see there. And yes, that is but a percentage of a percentage of the entire sky across the world. And yet, here is God painting in intricate details all the time, every day, right on time, from night to day, day to day, day to night, on this large canvas, all of these changes, and it all happens without you. Think about this, guys. You, you don't need the Hubble telescope. As amazing of wonders that that allows you to see, you can get a message even from the simple turning of day to night and night to day. You know, the daytime brings new opportunity for us to go out and work. The daytime tells you that God made you to be useful. The nighttime tells you your limits. It tells you that you can't go on forever and ever in your own strength. The nighttime invites you to rest in the one who doesn't sleep and doesn't slumber. The daytime reminds you that light is the only way you can see the world that's been made for you to inhabit and enjoy. The only way you can see it is not anything about you. The only way you can see it is if the light is turned on. So I think of what David says in Psalm 36. He says, in your light. 
Do we see light? Simple turning from day to night, you know, the nighttime reminds you that you aren't alone. Think about it. If not for night, what knowledge would you have of the things that are above you? You want to be able to see them. And the lights that remain at night remind you that you haven't been abandoned. Simple turning from night to day. It gives you a message. It gives you perspective. Night won't last forever. I think about what David says in Psalm 30. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And there is a morning, there is a day when daytime will last forever and night will be no more. Day to day, night to night, we get a message about the glory and the power and the beauty of God. For all the changes of the day and night, there is one who knows no shadow or turning of change. There is one who never experiences change, who exists above it all. Psalm 139, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So my friends, join David and look up. And when David looks up, he notices the sky's most obvious, literally most glaring feature. That is the sun. And the sun reflects the one who made it. Right? God is like the one who pursues us like a groom every day. God gives light and heat to all of his world, the just and the unjust. The sun reflects the one who made it. Author Andrew Wilson reflects on this like this. The sun is the fountain of light, the first, the source, the origin of illumination for everything else. The sun is the gravitational centerpiece of the solar system. Get this, the sun contains 99.7% of the solar system's total mass. It pulls everything else into its orbit. It reflects the one who made it. The sun isn't like the moon, which reflects light from another source. No, like its maker, the sun's source of its light is in itself. There's no distinction between what it is and what it does. It gives light and heat because it is light and heat. And so God does good all the time because he is good all the time. And yet... For as many ways as the sun reflects the God who made it, the sun is not God. For as magnificent as the sun is, notice what David writes about it. The sun is obedient. God gave it its place to occupy. God gave it its course to run. Oh, this magnificent, magnificent sun shows only how magnificent the one who made it is. My friend, look up. When you do, when you look up at what's above you, what's the message that you hear? Maybe you, or maybe someone that you know, maybe you're skeptical about the message that we've talked about so far. Maybe you're skeptical about the message that there is a God who made all this, who is glorious in power and beauty and wisdom, And if you're skeptical about that, you want to be the first because it's not a new phenomenon to look up at the phenomena in the sky and simply explain it away. Ancient people of old came up with myths and legends to explain the sun, moon, and stars. You know, you and I might know more in 2023, but we still explain it away. 
We say that science explains the origin of the universe. But the thing is, the origin of the universe isn't a scientific question. Science can't answer that question. The origin of the universe is a philosophical question. And people just use their, philosoph- their science as a front for their ph- philosophy. In other words, people say God can't exist because they don't want God to exist. They just have a commitment, as Romans 1 puts it, to suppress the truth about God that they know and exchange it for a lie. Theologian Don Carson writes this, people commit to the notion of a random, purposeless, mindless, accidental origin of everything. It's a commitment that does anything to escape the more obvious conclusion that God made it all. But my friend, if you're skeptical of this message, consider this. God hasn't left himself without a messenger. As I was researching this week, I came across a story from the French Revolution and there was one instance from the French Revolution where, you know, uh, one of the leaders of the revolution just takes over a town and he's talking with a peasant there. Uh, and he says, listen, peasants, uh, I'm going to remove all of the steeples in your city and you're not going to have any object left that reminds you of your old superstitions. And the peasant said, OK, well, that's fine and good. You could take down all your steeples. You can't take down the stars. My friend, you might keep the Bible closed. You might run far away from church. You can't run away from the stars. You can't silence the sky. When you look up, I know, even if you're skeptical, I know that there's a part of you that realizes that there is no way this is an accidental collision of molecules. When you look up, there is a voiceless message that says, the hand that made us is divine. Look up. Brother, sister, I wonder, friend here, I wonder, do you even look up? I find that most people today aren't outright atheists. I think most people today just don't care. (laughs) They're just indifferent. They're too busy. They're too distracted. They're too stimulated to care or to think. And it's often the case that Christians are just no better. And I think it's ironic that there is more poetry and wonder and awe from people like David who existed thousands of years ago than people today with all the information that we have. Isn't that ironic? Why? Why is that? Maybe there are lots of explanations, but uh, it gets me thinking. I wonder if one explanation is like um, the previews you see for the summer blockbuster movies, right? So that advertisement for Fast and Furious 27 um, wants to, they want to convince you to see this movie on the big screen, right? Because that's the true way to experience, right? They might be trying to sell you something, but I think they are onto something. That there is something qualitatively different when you are immersed and surrounded. So maybe, maybe one reason why people from the past have a more wonder-filled worship of the creator is because their experience of creation isn't always mediated through a screen. For as many amazing photographs that we have, for as many uh, cool documentaries that we can watch, I don't think it can ever compare to simply stepping outside and looking around. You and I get to be immersed in all that God's made. And he has left traces of himself everywhere. So my friend, look up. Go to the woods at sunset and look up and see the golden beams create this sanctuary of green. Go to the fields at night 
drive out in an hour and look up and see the one who knows all the stars by name. Go to the highest peak you can find and look up and see that at your highest point, God is higher still. David looks up and he hears a message about the glorious God who made all that's around him. My friend, maybe you do look up. Maybe you're on board with this message we've been talking about, but maybe you stop here. Maybe you, someone you know, is content with finding God only in nature. But remember, look at verse 3, Psalm 19, verse 3. The message you find in creation or nature, that message is without words. It's a nonverbal message. So one pastor observes from this what I've discovered in just a few short years of marriage. You'll know what I mean. That even the best nonverbal communication can very easily be misinterpreted. Right? You might look up at creation and you might conclude, you might find, yes, God is real. Yes, God is powerful. But when you look up, you won't find a message about how you can relate to God. If this is all you have. You might, you might look up and you might know that God is real. You might know God is powerful, but you can't know how you can know God, how you can be saved by God, how you can talk to God. You need something more. Why don't you join David? And don't just look up at God and his creation. Why don't you look down at God's word and see him there as well? You need more than that nonverbal message. You need a verbal one. So let's go to the second stage of the progress Verses 7 to 11, look down. And I want your eyes to scan across these verses, 7 to 11. And you'll see that David uses six different nouns for the Bible. I'm helped here by Bible scholar Derek Kidner. So he calls the Bible the law or Torah. This is a comprehensive term for God's revealed will. He uses the noun testimony. This is truth attested to by God himself. Uses the nouns, precepts, and commandment. This shows the precision and the authority with with which God addresses us. He uses the noun fear or reverence that emphasizes the human response that is fostered by his word. He uses the noun rules or judgments. These are the judicial decisions that God has recorded about various human situations. Friend, that Bible on your lap right now or in your hands, what is it? What is this thing that you hold in your hands? What sits on your lap? Is it just a collection of vague fables and legends? Is it just squishy and cheesy aphorisms and cliches? It is something so much more than that. What you hold in your hands is the desire that God has for your life and that he himself has given to you and to me. What you hold in your hands is God's own wisdom. It's a look at God's own character. When you look down in the Bible, you can see that God has revealed himself. And David even talks about it. You just have to look closely. Did you notice the name that is attached to each one of those nouns in verses 7 through 11? Look at the name that's attached to it. The law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord, the command of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. Compare that to verses 1 to 6. And what's the name of God that David uses there? It's just the generic name, God. So when he looks up at creation, 
That's, that's the name that he sees. But then he looks down at the word and he sees the name that God has revealed. That without the word of God, without the Bible, we wouldn't know what name to call God. The Lord, this is the name Yahweh, I am, who I am. This is the name that God told Moses of the burning bush. This is the name of his covenant steadfast love. The Bible in your hands is the self-revelation of God himself. I want you just to scan over verses seven to 11. David not only uses six different nouns for the Bible, he also uses six different verbs in the Bible. He's talking about what the Bible does, what it is in itself. He says the Bible revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. It is righteous altogether. You see what I'm talking about here? Notice the progress of these verbs. They build on one another. So the Bible revives. It brings life where there is death. It leads us to return to the one who made us. The Bible makes us wise, so not only does it lead us back to the Lord, it instructs us how to keep going. The Bible gives us joy. So not only are we turned back, not only are we instructed, but then we discover the joyful life for which God made us. The Bible then enlightens the eyes. The old London preacher, Charles Spurgeon, puts it like this. He says, the Bible is a skillful oculist. I love that word. The skillful oculist. He says, whether your eye is dim with sorrow or whether your eye is dim with sin, the Bible can make your eyes clear and bright. So notice the progress, right? The, the Bible brings us back. The Bible keeps us going. The Bible leads us to joy. The Bible gives us a discerning eye as we live in the world. Something about these verbs, think about this, reflect. If this is all that the Bible can do to you, then it shows you that there's something true about you. Think about this. If the Bible, if God revives your soul through his word, then that, mean you, that means your soul needs reviving. That means you must be spiritually dead and spiritually far away from your maker. If the Bible gives you wisdom, then that must mean you don't have meaningful wisdom in yourself. If the Bible gives joy, that must mean you lack deep resources for lasting joy. If the Bible enlightens the eyes, then that must mean on your own, your vision and your discernment are lacking. If all of this is true about what the Bible does, then that means there's something true about you as well. If all this is true, then isn't the Lord gracious not just to give us the nonverbal message of the world, but to give us the verbal message of his word? My friend, do you see? The Bible has the power to restore who God made you to be. Nothing else can do that for you. David says riches can't do that for you. David says pleasure can't do that for you. The Bible has the power to restore who God made you to be. Isn't everyone looking for that in some kind of way? They just look in the wrong places. But the thing is, the only way you're going to receive the Bible the only way they're going to listen to God's word and believe what he says, the only way that the Bible is going to be more precious to you than gold and sweeter to you than honey, the only way is if you believe that the Bible is perfectly true and trustworthy. Why would it be precious to you if you can't trust it? Or to use David's adjectives, the only way you'll receive and believe the Bible is if you believe that it is perfect, sure, 
right, pure, clean, and true. If you don't believe this about the Bible, I wonder if you wouldn't just take it on the word of David. I wonder if you would also take it on the word of someone who got up from the dead, Jesus Christ, and what he said about the Bible. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says that not one of the Bible's words will pass away. John chapter 10, Jesus says that the scriptures can't be broken. Matthew 15, 7 to 9, Jesus says that the Bible is the ultimate authority over the opinions and the wisdom of men. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls the Bible the very words of God. So my friend, when you look down at the Bible, what do you do? What do you do with it? Do you try to just pick it apart? Maybe when you look down at the Bible, do you try to just pick what you like and leave behind what you don't like? Maybe you you like the stuff about how to treat your neighbor. You don't like the stuff so much about how to treat your own body. You like the stuff about grace and forgiveness. You don't like the bloody cross that secures grace and forgiveness. But the thing is, when some parts of the Bible aren't trustworthy, then pretty soon the entire thing won't be trustworthy. What's more is that if you approach it like this, you're not submitting to God's word. You're trying to get God's word to submit to you. You have it backwards. One of my former pastors says this, that you'll never be a good Bible reader if you've already decided what God should say. That's not how David interacts with the Bible. Look at verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So if the Bible is God's self-revelation, if it's how God revives us and gives us wisdom and joy and discernment, if it is perfectly trustworthy, if you really believe that, then you won't just study the Bible. You'll let the Bible study you. Do you get the difference? Let me explain with an example. It's just the first one that came to mind. So afterwards, after we're all done here, when someone tells me, Steve, I liked the sermon today. I take that as a genuine encouragement, okay? I know it's well-intended. I know it comes from a good place. Thank you. But when you push that too far, a statement like that might come from a misunderstanding. A misunderstanding that says we evaluate the word rather than the word evaluates us. So we might say, if I am sufficiently entertained, if I am sufficiently engaged and kept awake by the sermon, well, then I like it. No. If the sermon is faithful to the biblical text, don't ask, how do I evaluate the sermon? Ask first, how did this sermon evaluate me? How did this explanation and application of God's word help me? How did it comfort me? How did it challenge me? How did it move me to praise the living God? Can you see the shift there? You don't just study the Bible. You let the Bible study you. Because when David looks down at the Bible, he can't help but realize that the Bible looks back at him. And just like the sun exposes everything by its light, so the word of God exposes everything with its light. He realizes, verse 11, he's been warned. He hasn't heeded all those warnings. He's been offered blessing by keeping God's word. He hasn't kept it. So what does David do next? He does what you and I should do. He cries out. This is verses 12 to 14. David turns to address God directly in these verses. He, so he is, he's looked up at the sky, the God who made it. He's looked down at the word, seeing God there. And then he responds. He feels his inadequ- inadequacy. 
A true view of God will leave you with a true view of yourself. David realizes his sin. Specifically, he even realizes how much his sin keeps him from seeing all of his sin. Right? He's, he's built up such a tolerance to his own sin that he's desensitized to it. Right? Who can discern all of his errors? He certainly can. But let me help us understand this, just maybe two analogies. Okay, let's say you were taken to court. Right, I hope this doesn't happen to you. Uh, let's say you were taken to court and you were put on trial. And you might be, uh, I have no law degree, but I, you might be allowed to represent yourself as your own attorney. But you will never be allowed to represent yourself as the judge. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? You want to be able to see everything, and what you do see, you would skew in your favor. And that, that's how some people treat themselves. Not just their own attorney, but their own judge. Another analogy. You know, David has this tolerance to sin. He's now desensitized to it. He can't even see all of it. It makes me think how you and I will acknowledge our sins in the plural. We seldom acknowledge our sin in the singular. So here's what I mean. You might think about your sins like thorns on a rose bush. I have the occasional mishap. I have the, uh, you know, slight imperfections. I have the innocent mistakes. But there's still plenty of good there. There's still plenty of roses among the thorns. But sin in the singular is like the odor of the entire garden of your life. Sin is the aroma of all that you do. Whatever is not done from faith is sin. And if you know anything about odor, you know that if you live in it long enough, you don't smell it anymore. This means, friends, sin is the aroma of everything that we do. Everything you say, everything you think, everything you do. Even the good things, even this sermon for me, <laughs> Even your best prayers is in some way tainted with the aroma, the odor of sin. Underneath it, there, there is somewhere some self-serving motive. Underneath it, there's somewhere some impure intention or thought. Underneath it, there's some even rebellious action. What does Jeremiah say? The Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? So for David, when, when he is woken up to this, the Bible is like his smelling salt that wakes him up to the odor of his entire life. When you wake up to this, where else does it leave you besides casting yourself entirely on God's mercy and forgiveness? David cries out, God, declare me innocent because I can't get this odor off of me. But he keeps going because David understands not only the sin that's hidden from him, he also understands the sin that he's capable of. He calls them presumptuous sins in verse 13. These are sins he hasn't become desensitized to. These are ones he knows that are wrong, and yet he knows he's capable of doing them, and he even knows he's capable of being dominated by them. So have you ever tried to convince yourself, or maybe heard someone try to convince themselves that they are a good person, because, and I quote, I've never murdered anybody. <laughs> you know, the same one who wrote this psalm, David, the same one here who speaks so eloquently and sincerely about God. David, the same one here who was used by God to write nearly all of the psalms. 
The same one here who wrote lines like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David, the same one here who's called in other places a man after God's own heart. The same one here, under the light of God's word, David confesses in verse 13 that even the worst of sins exist in acorn form in his heart. And he knows how easily those acorns can become trees. The one here who prayed this prayer committed the presumptuous sins of murder and adultery. You really think your heart is any better than his? When you wake up to this, that the, the, the worst of sins are, exist in acorn form in my heart, where else are you going to turn besides just casting yourself entirely on God's grace? David cries out, God, keep me from this. He wants God to make all that he thinks, says, and, do, and does acceptable in his sight. David looks up at the sky and sees, and here's a message there. He looks down at the word and sees God there, and then he is cut to the core. And basically, David cries out two prayer requests. He cries out, God, declare me righteous, and God, make me righteous. And David doesn't know that God would answer those prayers far better than he would ever know, experience. The word through which God made the world would take on flesh to save those in the world. You look back at Psalm 19. Jesus heeded every one of the Father's warnings. Jesus kept every one of the Father's commandments. Think of that odor analogy. There was not the faintest smell of sin to Jesus's life. All of the words of his mouth, all of the meditations of his heart were acceptable to his father. And this, this blameless and innocent life is what Jesus, is what makes Jesus an acceptable sacrifice for you and for me. So you can cry out right now, God, declare me innocent. Declare me righteous. Not because of anything about me, but because of him, because of his innocence. Because his righteousness is the solid rock upon which I stand. You can cry out to God, God, declare me innocent. Declare me righteous because of Jesus' acceptable sacrifice in your place. His blood is the redemption of your life. And when you do that, when you see that this gloriously powerful God who made you is also the gloriously gracious God who saved you, oh, you won't just pray, declare me righteous. You'll also pray, God, make me righteous. You'll want to live for him. You'll want to be close to him. Because when you know that God has declared you righteous in Christ, then you'll also want to be righteous like Christ. You'll pray something like what we'll sing in just a minute. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought, with my every deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank you that we can know you.
And we could not know you in our own wisdom. We can know you only because you have graciously revealed yourself to us. And we love that we can say, you are our rock and our redeemer. Would you bring anyone here who has not had a true view of you to see your beauty and your wisdom and your purity and in turn has not viewed themselves truly? Would you revive, give life to their soul and open their eyes to see Christ, the innocent and perfect one who died as the acceptable sacrifice in their place? And would you cause people here today to cry out to you to declare me innocent, not based on me, but based on Jesus? And those who have cried that out, God, would you make us righteous like him and shine through us in this world that you have made? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.